HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation... So, yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider, and I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. And welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with a, a trifecta, the three-headed prong of Kosen Patisserie. Uh, I mean, we all have our locals. I mean, maybe those haunts are bars, maybe they're restaurants. Uh, for me and for a lot of people, those are, you know, patisseries, little cafes that serve wonderfully baked goods that are anywhere on the spectrum of Viennoiserie. And we'll define what that is in a second. But first, we're going to talk about not just France, but Belgium, too. You know, they have delicious things to eat. And with founder or co-founder of sorts of Colson Patisserie, Yannatin Israel, who is a, a Parisian-born filmmaker, and we, we can talk about as much Godard as you want, uh, but you opened up a, a French-Belgian bakery on 6th Ave and 9th Street in Park Slope. Why? Well, uh, so interestingly, although I grew up in Paris, which, you know, is arguably one of the greatest cities for pastries in the world. My connection to pastries uh, was made in Belgium when I would visit my grandparents uh, who lived in Belgium. So my mom, my mother is born in Belgium. She grew up in this small town uh, called Mons. And um, my grandparents didn't have, you know, I don't come from a food family. 
my parent, my grand, my parents, my grandparents weren't like big cooks. One of the traditions that we would go visit them pretty regularly, and my grandfather would go to the pastry shop, or one of the many pastry shops of the town, and bring boxes of of, of pastries, like you know, an assortment. So the merveilleux, the uh, the rice pudding tarts, eclairs, shoe, all kinds, and basically that's where I was. I would eat pastries like in Paris wasn't a thing I don't know it's just what my parents weren't buying it wasn't really attracted to it so my connection to pastries really uh, was in Belgium so a croissant was more like daily bread versus you know uh, having a Liège waffle was it was a treat yeah it was solid treat I mean you know in, in Paris every kid after school is gonna go through the boulangerie and buy a pain chocolat or croissant uh, I mean I wasn't more into that kind of product than any other kid you know it was just a thing and it was really that connection to my grandparents cakes uh, the, the, the cakes that they would buy that later on in life uh, you know hit me in a way that uh, made me want to open a pastry shop and then you know through that process and then I circled back into the French pastry world too but it had something to do with childhood and with that, that, that special connection uh, that I found later when I visited Hubert Colson's pastry shop in that same town of Mons. So why not a documentary about that? I, I dug up something about you that when you went to new school, you produced a documentary called Watermarks about a champion women's swimming team. After school. After school. Yeah. Uh, about a Jewish sports club in Vienna in the 1930s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why, why real life? Like, why does being a documentarian interest you? Uh, it was just, uh, you know, something that happened after film school. I met this filmmaker who had this incredible story that he wanted to tell, and I just jumped on that opportunity and worked with him for four years to make that movie and at the end of that process I also realized that um, I wanted to do something else and that if I wanted to stay in New York and keep my sanity uh, filmmaking wasn't the thing yeah but uh, o opening up a patisserie keeps your sanity that's what I thought <laughs> that's that's yeah. you know you know, I, I really sort of approached it as a, as a producer, and I felt that there were many of that, those skills that I had learned in filmmaking that I could um, move to that new project, you know, create and sort of write the script, you know, and find the recipes and budget and, and find the people to do it. And, um, you know, so I think I used some of those skills to, to create that shop. Well, with us today, we have two other of your wonderful cohorts. Can you introduce to me who we have and, and what role they play? Okay, so in chronological order, there's Andrew Hackel, who's my business partner. I joined the company in 2013. And he started in the company uh, in sales and has since basically you know, shared every aspect, every responsibility in every aspect of the business. And then there's Natalie Abrams, who's our executive chef, who's been in the company for three years. Yes. Uh, who's also a jack of all trades. Just can't keep her hands out of anything. And she's, she's 
she's amazing. And there, these two people are really important because each one represents um, an episode of growth in the company, which is that, you know, I run that company by myself for six years, uh, decided to expand to Industry City to go a wholesale business somewhere in 2011. Andrew joined, uh, you know, miraculously found each other uh, through the help of a friend. And, you know, Andrew joining really allowed the company to grow significantly. And then at some point, Andrew and I realized, hey, we need some serious people to help us do this. And, you know, that's when we started looking for managers, kitchen managers, and we had the good luck to find Natalie, who's been with us since. See, I, I love systems and scale. You might not like them because you live within them every day at the bakery, but Andrew and Natalie, can you talk to me about what you saw in Colson, the, the possibilities of it having exponential growth? Um, was it a specific pastry or, or memory that you had um, upon tasting that that said, I want to work here? or Or... You know, do you see a small little place in Park Slope becoming a megalith in Industry City, if not bigger? Uh, for me, it was the ham and cheese croissant. Um, I had a recollection of that growing up in my childhood. And when I used to go to work with my dad when I was a child, we would stop at a little Parisian bakery, and I had no idea what I was having or what I was getting, but it was a ham and cheese croissant. And that croissant from Colson's brought that memory back I had no idea I had that memory uh, and that was like the one thing that was it on the food side from being part of Colson Patisserie and wanting to be part of it it was it was Jonathan uh, as well like it was a huge opportunity to work with him and it was great to work with him and it is continues to be great to work with him um, there was a 2800 square foot kitchen in Industry City and maybe we were using 15 percent 20% of it uh, when I when we when I arrived yep. it, it was it was new in the process a little yeah. bit okay. 30% <laughs> <laughs> a little. um but there was a there was a lot of growth to to be had and it could easily yeah. I, I felt it could easily be had um not for sure I mean that you've worked at uh, numerous bakeries Bouchon being one uh, stage with Claudia Fleming as well uh you've you know, been put through the proverbial ringer of, of being a pastry chef. What is it about finding your place, being here for three years? And I, I, you know, I've been a customer for a long time and have just seen it grow so exponentially. Um, well, so for me, coming to Colson was, I guess, a little bit different and a little bit unique in that um, most of the bakeries and restaurants that I had found you know, we're all sort of similar in the bar of, I guess, expectation of staff and then compensation of staff and sort of just the general treatment of, okay, you're in the kitchen and, you know, so this was far before $15 an hour was passed, you know, and so I just became very accustomed to you're going to do a massive amount of work you're not really going to get paid and that's just how it goes you know and so for years I was waitressing on the side to kind of try and hustle and have enough money to have some flexibility and stability and um, coming to Colson's was frankly the first time that that was ever offered and I could step away from the front of house side of the world 
um, which was amazing because I was able to focus in a way on pastry that I had never been able to focus before because there was always this work-life balance, which wasn't even a work-life balance, but just like a financial sanity balance that was needed. Um, and so by having the space and by being given the opportunity and responsibility, um, that was really just an amazing opportunity. And so coming into the kitchen, I wasn't, I hadn't come in with this goal of coming in to manage this kitchen or manage the entire team. I came in because the hours seemed nice and, you know, I could go home and be with my daughter and go to school. And then when I saw the team at Industry City and I saw what they were doing without any supervision without any sort of structure with everybody just doing the work that they knew needed to get done that for me is still just like a mind-boggling breathtaking thing of like what a powerful and dedicated team Colson has and for me it's really about the people that I get to work with every day because everyone is just driven in a way that is that's rare and and it's something to be really valued. And so. I've been in that bakery a lot, and it's always humming. There's always something happening. Uh, how many employees are you up to now? Uh, well, I manage about 47, <laughs> and that doesn't include our front of house. And there's about 12 on the front of house side. Yeah, I, I was reading some statistics over the years. I, I believe it was in 2016, that series, each said you use 15... 100 pounds of butter for croissants per week. Do you know what that's up to now? About 2,500 pounds a week. It, how many croissants is that? We're producing about 3,000 croissants a day, more yeah, I mean, or less. That's a wild thing, right? <laughs> it, it's my, Well, at least, Jonathan, from you having that one little corner of Park Slope to what you have now, I mean, what were you producing when you first opened up Colson? Well, <laughs> I don't mean monetarily. I mean, a couple of, you know, a couple of dozens. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, New York forces you to do that. Uh, you know, I'm glad things happened the way they happened. But in a way, there was no other choice. You have to grow in New York. That shop became sort of financially viable once we reached a certain level of um, wholesale. And it took seven years, eight years, you know, I mean, we, we were doing okay, but barely. I mean, there was no, you know, uh, th there was no money on the side for emergencies. There was no money to hire talent. There was no money for marketing. I mean, we were a successful shop basically from the time we opened. But if you're, if you're going to pay people to do everything seven days a week and the cost of doing business in the city, you got to be selling a lot of croissant coffee. I'm assuming you have to be good, too. Like, it actually has to taste delicious at I mean, some point. We, yeah, we were we lucky. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we, we, we were lucky. We, you know, we definitely have much better people that, than we had. Uh, but we had good recipes. I was amazingly lucky to have Hubert Colson uh, come throughout the years and help and support and push me. Um, you know, and, you know, for years he, he sort of acted as a, you know, supervisor, consultant, 
and uh, th that was invaluable, you know. And it's sort of him, him, and, and me really tried to to keep certain standards, and I, you know, we've been fortunate. I can't I can't say it other way. People were very supportive in the community. Uh, other businesses came to us quickly and asked for wholesale uh, to get our product wholesale, and and it grew. But it could have gone. Many other. I mean, it could have gone another way. The accolades must help, though. You, you've been awarded Best Croissant in New York by the Daily News. Uh, your chocolate financiers are, are legendary, at least in my mind, in my household. Thank you. And then it, the, the cutest manifestation of, of Hubert Colson ever is the teddy bear financier that you have. What, what have been the things that have hit the menu and have been stalwarts that you can never take off? And what are the things that you've tried and you know, even now, today, that, that just don't work, even though you try as hard as you can to make them work. I mean, the, the, the teddy bear is definitely one of those items where we've seen what happens when you hold them back. Uh, we've renovated a couple times over the years and we're closed. There are countless times I have come out to tell parents, it's, it's going to be okay. Your child can have a teddy bear. We're reopening in two days. They don't need to cry on the sidewalk. But that's like a security blanket, I think, for a lot of parents. <laughs> totally. I don't mean for the kids. I feel bad about the about that, but uh, you know, it's, it's really not much we can do. Um, you know, on this on the same breath, there are items that we've tried. The one of them is the financier bricks uh, with the chocolate ganache across the top, or raspberry jam, and. It's the same base as the as the financier teddy bear, with chocolate ganache over top. Who doesn't want that? Like, and we can't seem to find the answer because yeah. it's not there. That one makes me sad because it's it's like the perfect texture and everything. To me, it's one of the perfect pastries, but we can't really move it. So, yeah, I mean, what sells better, uh, calling something a donut or a souvenir? I well, think. depends on the holiday. <laughs> depends on the holiday, but that's yeah. you know that's that's that that's a tip, that's a good example. That this is a product we started. Uh, I don't remember a few years back as a special for Hanukkah and calling them souvenirs. But they're basically donuts, and uh, we ran it for a week during Hanukkah, and then you know took them off the menu. And the week after, we had two one-star reviews on Yelp just because the donuts weren't there anymore. And so that, that kind of forced us to put it back. And it's been on the menu ever since. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, I mean, you hear it. People get really attached to stuff, you know, when people care and when they don't. I mean, I asked you the question before about being a documentarian. Um, you, you're working in Cinema Verite. You're working in real life. You must find the humor and the threads and the callbacks throughout dealing with this stuff every day. Uh, is that enjoyable to you or is it um, just almost Sisyphusian? Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it, different things are enjoyable at different times. I mean, you know, I, I, the first few years I was in the shop all the time and that doesn't really happen anymore. And so I found, I think I find satisfaction in change and in, in growth and working with different people and doing things differently at the same time keeping the product as you know as as close to to its original quality as possible and that's a real challenge but it's an interesting challenge never get rid of that teddy bear on that note we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back 
Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. You're listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Jonathan uh, Andrew and Natalie of Colson Patisserie, a wonderful little cafe in Park Slope, as well as Industry City in Sunset Park. And I, I, I want to talk about that leap a little bit more and scale. Um, like, when do you get a sheeter? When do you get revent ovens? Uh, how do you utilize the mass of cast iron waffle makers that you have uh, to pump out hundreds upon hundreds a day. When do you know that that's going to be a good investment? After it is. (laughs) Because that's when you find out. Because there's, you know, it goes back over the question of supply and demand and what you forecast as supply and demand and what you think might not be right. Um, so when we've gone to that next level of equipment purchasing, it's always been after the fact, um, and it guarantees it's a good investment, um, which I prefer. When you're you're very good at educating yourself about whatever the next purchase is or the next you know idea or iteration of Colson is. When you walked into Industry City, what pieces of equipment did you see, and what have you gotten since? Um, I didn't know what I was doing when I walked into <laughs> Industry City, so. I, I now know that I saw four Vulcan ovens. Um, it was two Euro dib waffle makers, and there was a Thunderbird sheeter. It was the 500 model. It was the 500, not the T, because it was the upright. It wasn't the tabletop. <laughs> uh, that's what was there. I know that now, um, and can't forget the two Hobarts um, uh, mixers, but I had no idea what I was looking at. I came from finance, so yeah. I had no idea what I was doing. Then why were you willing to take an investment on something you had no idea about? Originally, I didn't, we did not do the investment. I came in and after we worked together for about a year, um, I mean, the idea was possible to, to, the, to invest in, but I wanted to make sure that we had a good working relationship and we could work together and that he could work with me and I could work with him and that the business was viable. Because um, I would hate to make an investment and find out that it's not. Um, and, and it was clearly because we're, we're here today, uh, six plus years later, um, when we made the decision to purchase the, uh, revent ovens, it was on the move. Um, we moved from building two to building three. We went from 2,800 square feet to a little over 8,000 square feet. Um, and you know, when we made that move, we planned for additional growth and, set the kitchen up in a way that we could add a second revent. And then an opportunity came where it was a second revent that was found in North Carolina. It was the exact same model we had, had never been used before, and someone was selling it. It's like, it's used? Like, is it stolen? They're like, no. I was like, <laughs> sounds good. Is there, we'll take it. Is there a gray or black market for this kind of stuff? I'm not looking for it, so the answer for me <laughs> is no. 
um, and I don't want to find it. I'm, yeah. I'm very happy paying what we should be paying for stuff on the used market um, or, or purchasing new. I, I, we don't need to go there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, speaking of purchasing, Natalie, have you ever worked a job where you had this kind of purchasing power? No. I mean, this is the first time that I've, you know, been able to have input into sort of this decision-making process. And so for me, it was almost easier coming into the kitchen and saying this is the equipment that we will be needing because it was very clear what bottlenecks existed in the production process on the floor. Um, when we decided to get the second revent, it was, you know, a question of when will we be able to pay this off? And so we were able to have a pretty clear answer just by seeing exactly what efficiencies it would allow us. Um, so to some degree, you know, it's the first time um, that, you know, budgets of this size have been sort of, that I've been able to have any input on them. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't a hard decision or call for me to make in terms of the math on return on labor, you know, or on things that are just fundamentally necessary, like a proper dishwasher, which we had recently installed that runs hot and sanitizes nice. all of our things, you yeah. know, so it's the little things in life. Yeah. <laughs> coming from, from, you know, years in kitchens, I was able to say, this is, this is our bottleneck right now. If we don't fix this, then we're going to have issues very soon, or we're going to need to change um, our bake schedule. And, you know, potentially that means that customers aren't getting as fresh product. And so by being on the floor for the first year and a half with Colson, um, it was, it was much more apparent about what equipment purchases needed to happen. And I mean, aside from equipment, you never want to compromise quality. So uh, did you change things like butters and flours and the most rudimentary of ingredients in there? Or did you stay as true to these recipes that were concepted as possible? Um, well, we had, I would say, some product improvements that we wanted to make and that we will continue to want to make and, you know, always pushing forwards and not just hanging on to the past recipe because that is the past recipe. And so I think if the goal is always a better product, then I am always willing to try something new. Um, so we spent ages trying our croissant with different butters and with different ratios. And we, I, oh, I spent so many tests <laughs> on that. Yeah. She, um, she did. We yeah. ate a lot of croissants that we, we, we was, never produced for the public. Yeah. There was a ton of croissants. So what butter did you land on right now? And I mean, what things do you think almost work, but didn't quite come up to snuff? Well, we had um, some products which we tested a plugra butter, which gave us a croissant um, that was actually, still to my mind, the more beautiful version of our product. Um, and it was hard to say no to that, but once we did a taste test against our current recipe and that final version of ultimate testing, you know, we still fell short. And so... For now, we've decided that, okay, we're going to leave the croissant alone until we get antsy with it in another <laughs> four, five, six years. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, that we were ultimately satisfied and happy with 
with our taste. And I think the taste for me has always been the most important thing. I've gotten, uh, I would say, dissatisfied with jobs where the, the appearance was always the primary factor. And so having the taste for all of us be this sort of common theme that needs to be the strongest part of our quality is really important. Well, I mean, let's talk about appearance because uh, having a brick and mortar in Park Slope and Industry City, the majority of your business is wholesale now. So how do you deal with having the product out of your hands? Um, You don't have to necessarily name names, but who are the more difficult customers and why? Um, <laughs> you don't have to talk about the specific no, customer, no, no. but like, what are the problems with certain customers having your product in hand? Um, and, and what are the kind of customers that you're looking for? The hardest, the hardest part of the, about the, on the customer side is the customer who has a smaller shop and orders every other day. Um, and then they have a big sign that says Colson Pastries sold here. And that's accurate. But, it, you know, on the off day, it should be a big sign that says day-old Colston pastries sold here. And people who are coming in and buying day-old product might leave the shop, leave that uh, cafe thinking Colston's product isn't that good. It's not flaky. It's soft. I don't know. It seems stale. What's going on? Have they gone downhill? Well, we didn't go downhill. It's day-old. It's probably pretty good for day-old croissant, but that's not what you're looking for, and that's not what they're buying. And those are the, those are the customers from on the wholesale side that are really the hardest because how do you say, you know, I don't want to say no to the business. Someone needs to sell them. They need to have a shop. It's a little small location. It's really cute. They do a nice work job, job with the coffee. They're just not moving enough. Yeah. I mean, I always wondered how you mitigate that because obviously you want to get paid. I mean, this is a for-profit business. Um, and you want to keep those relationships alive with those smaller businesses as well, but there's got to be a threshold. There is. There's been a couple of them like, can we order every three days? Like, no, that, yeah. that's that's just not going to do it for us. Um, on a day old, we'll we'll let it go. Um, we ask them not to put a sign up that says Colson Pastry sold here, uh, but we do let it go. Yeah. I, what are your favorite Colson Pastry places that aren't Colson? Oh boy. Playground. What, what's Playground? <laughs> <laughs> well, Playground, I think, is a cafe with a mission. I've personally, actually, never been there, and I just read about them, and I'm very inspired. And also, my sister goes there often, and yeah. she tells me that, you know, they're pretty great. Yeah. So, yeah. Park Slope Food Corp. Hmm. I'm not a member, so I'm not allowed in. I'm, I'm not, not a member. Yeah. 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 None of us are members, <laughs> but <laughs> they're, you know, they're great customers of ours and very happy and I, I, I constantly hear from people who buy there who shop or work at the cop and see our products there and I get a lot of feedback but we have we have too many customers to name them all yeah you know but we we, we love them all yeah, yeah. how many customers do you have in total about 190 daily deliveries that's wild. Do you have your own truck? Do you use a service? How does this happen? We use a service. We have enough going on inside our own place that we, uh, we've we decided not to uh, bring the delivery inside. Um, it's a fear about, you know, a truck breaking down and us not having a backup truck. And then me driving my car around Brooklyn or Manhattan 
doesn't sound like much fun. Yeah, it's always cute to see those trucks emblazoned with a logo, but they look great. Fear. Yeah, I like. I'm like, we should get one of those, and then I start looking at it, going, we shouldn't get one of those, yeah. Yeah. or maybe just get the truck and drive it around empty. That's a good idea. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, from the back. I will say our our team of drivers is a team that we work with um, really closely, and they are, again, I, I think they're really exceptional because they are very um, proactive about telling us when there's problem, when there are delays, when they are having any issue getting into shops or, you know, the, and they're actually just nice people to work with. You know, I have to communicate with them and see them and interact with them pretty, pretty regularly. And, you know, they're for a crew of people who works kind of nonstop, they're surprisingly pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> and well, not very amazing. good hours. They're uh, they're overnight and overnight only. Yeah. Um, yeah. When it's raining or you know very cold outside, I I really think about them. This is a hard job. So they're like what the post office pretends to be. Yeah. In the middle yeah. of the night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're like the vampire version yeah. of the yeah. post office. So when we've had snowstorms and major closures uh there were road closures in in new york city and uh, you weren't allowed to go i we called up our delivery team we're like look roads are closed we're told to stay off the roads we're going to cancel and their question back was why and i <laughs> said I'm, I'm sorry what and they said no we'll, we'll go we'll, we're ready we're we can we can do it yeah i was like, saying no somebody needs that me way uh, i was like <laughs> Okay, and they they went. Um, no issues. The biggest concern we have is that somebody gets injured, and they yeah. you know we always try to like pair them back and say, okay, we're gonna cut routes and and limit the service to a smaller radius so that people can still get the pastries who need it. Call customers, ask if they want to cancel, and try to reduce the number of places that they're going um, so that they're not rushing and down the down the really bad roads. Yeah, and I also can see certain pastries like a mifoy. You're going down a really, you know, bad road during bad weather. That thing's shifting all over the place. It just looks yeah. like the desserts we have special deliveries for. Yeah, because we're we're a little too paranoid still. Yeah, so. well, let's talk about those specialty items because we've spent so much time on croissants, financiers. Uh, what are the things that? You know, have a special sweet place in your hearts. I know someone here is going to bring up the rice tart, so I'll, I'll jump in. You can start with that if you'd like. Um, what is it about, you know, like a Breton or a Mervio or a Perry breast that makes you want to keep those specialty items on menu, even though they're painstaking? They're very laborious to make, very beautiful on the outcome, but such specialty things. Yeah. It's it's I think it's part of the our DNA and the tradition that we you know, when I opened that shop with the name Colson, I sort of I, I I it was sort of a contract that I had to carry some of those traditions and those are the products, you know. But it the financier too. I mean I, I took those products that are selling well and are so important and you know, in, in our business and our identity, the waffles. Um, and then there are products that we don't sell as much just because people don't buy these types of products as, as much, you know. But the Merveilleux, the Merveilleux and the the, mac, the rice macaron tarts, they're just amazing products. And they're really, 
they're the products that have brought me here. There's, there's no question. I, explain exactly what they are from a sensory standpoint. What do they look like? What do they taste like? Okay, so Merveilleux, is, it's, it's really simple. Uh, my grand-grandmother used to say, you know, just take another one. You know, it's, it's just air. And it's really basically it's meringue and whipped cream and chocolate shavings. Yep. <laughs> yeah, very from, from a um, pastry standpoint, these items that we carry, the dessert items, the cakes, um, there's something that also, it helps keep the job interesting because, you know, our wholesale product lineup, we can't change too much. Um, if we do change it, it's a it's pretty intense process. Um, but for us to have space just in our shops to highlight things that we're excited about to highlight whatever fruits in season um, to take a little bit more time and you know make something that's that's really beautiful and special and give it you know we we know that it's not uh, maybe as profitable as some of our other products but it's something that that the rest of the team can all get excited to see and get excited to produce and, you know, that we can have some fun. And so it's always sort of been that element of fun and playfulness. Are there other things in that vein that you're hoping to incorporate into Colson as a whole? Um, you know, things that might be a stretch at first, but somehow down the road seem viable. Um, <laughs> There's silence like, in the room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we've been yeah, we've been working on a bread program uh, for the past uh, last year. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, we're hoping very soon to share some of these products and, and with where, a wider audience. Yeah. Where where does bread come from though? That this isn't like a big question that you have to. Is it the French side? Is it the Belgian side? Is it satisfying a need that you had that you can't find in New York or is it the fact that you have these wholesale accounts that also might need really delicious bread? It is the wholesale side that, you know, started the conversation and then once the conversation gets started, then it's about the quality of the product. How does it compare with what's out there in the marketplace? Can we compete? Can we do differently than others who are out there but it did start at the wholesale customer base where we had a couple of customers reach back and say hey we're not meeting minimums for our bread provider we need to switch in the vinoiserie product to them so that we can get delivery for our bread as well and that was a wake-up call on our side and that was the conversation that started and that started two and a half years ago so it's not something that we jumped in being like we need to fix this right away but what are we doing? Let's find the right opportunity. And the right opportunity seems to present itself now. Um, and uh, we're, you know, trying to find out the right mix of flour and water and yeast to, to be able to compete you in mean, the marketplace. You mean bread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but which bread is it? Is it the baguette that puts your foot in the door? Is it, you know, a, a miche that sets you apart from others? Um, or do you do both at the same time? Well, uh, hopefully we can do a little bit of both. And, you know, it would be amazing to have sort of the both sides similar that we have with Colson in our programs now, that we have some more specialty items and that we have some items that we know are just solid and rocks and just, you know, that everybody, that appeals to a much wider base. But Which I think... 
ideally in our utopia, uh, we have both and both do well. We do with the, with the cremique, which is yeah. not for a price point is not wholesaleable and it's a Belgium sweetbread and it's absolutely delicious. But there's no way that we'll be able to sell that wholesale, <laughs> on a wholesale level. Yeah. Um, and then the other part is like it's fun to come up and have a have a miche and have these other fun breads that we can do. But at the same point, everybody's going to need a baguette, and that's what you have to make. And then you can have a couple of the items that are you know, this is what sets us apart. Well, I will continue and always frequent Colson for the croissants. For those chocolate financiers, you know, stop by, have a Hubert the teddy bear, and be keeping my eye out for those baguettes, hopefully arriving soon. Um, thank you so much for being here. Go Thanks, stop by boss. and see Jan or uh, Natalie or Andrew in Park Slope, Industry City. Say hello and ask about those baguettes over and over and over <laughs> again. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Open to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to our sponsor, Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. The Food Scene is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio, supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage, and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sherry Bayer the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about HOST, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27, 2020, at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my All in the Industry show, HOST, which stands for Hospitality Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format, featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Drew Niporent, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobiani, JJ Johnson, and Jeff Gordonier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. We are offering a special early bird ticket price until November 30th, so don't miss out. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks.